There may be a Bible in the pews in front of you, and there's usually a table of contents there that indicates where the book of Judges is. It's the seventh book of the Bible. If you, would, you can turn there. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Judges chapter 2. And read the first five, five verses of Judges chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, We come now before you and ask that you would guide and direct us, that you would show us wondrous things out of your law. Lord, we are weak sinners and can understand nothing unless your Holy Spirit guides and instructs us. So instruct us and teach us by your Holy Spirit. Lead us to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. The title didn't make it into the bulletin this week because we had a a few extra things on our bulletin, but the title of this sermon is, What is this you have done? Is a question at the center of this whole text for this morning. The text for us begins with a situation that happens in Bochim, which we will discuss in a moment, and ends in Bochim, which means weeping. At the very center is this question that the angel of the Lord asks the people of Israel. What is this you have done? Now, like Israel, have you ever been asked this question? Have you ever been asked, what is this you have done? There's two circumstances where you can have this question asked to you. After a success, sometimes you're a bit surprised when somebody asks you this question. When they say, what is this you have done? And your mind immediately says, what have I done wrong? And then your boss or your parent or somebody who is an authority over you comes to you and brings before you something you have done successfully or done well. And they say, what is this you've done? This is amazing. This is beautiful. Maybe at children, you have done a piece of art in your room and your parents haven't seen it before. And then they say, did you draw this? What is this you've done? And then shyly you say, yes. It's a way of commending you for the work that you've done. But More often than not, I think we know when this question comes in our lives, is when somebody in authority over us comes to us and asks, what is this you have done? And immediately your mind races through all the things you've done wrong, and you wonder, are they going to bring up that one thing that you have done wrong? And then, in fact, they do. They roll it out before you. The boss peels back the layers of your neglect on a project. When your spouse says, what is this you have done? You have left things on the counter and now they have spoiled. When your parents reveal to you the messes you have made in the house or the sins that you have committed, the wrongs that you have done, the hurt you may have caused to a sibling, 
Ultimately, it's a question of your record, your performance. What is it that you have done? How would you answer this question if God, the ultimate authority, came to you and asked you this question? What is this that you have done? And he rules before you your entire life. What is the record that is going to be drawn out before God? If someone rolled out the whole record of your life, what would you say? How would you answer this question? How did the Israelites in this passage respond to this question that the angel of the Lord asks them? That is my hope today is to answer this question. First, we will see God's messenger, the angel of the Lord. Then we will see this message that comes from the angel of the Lord. And lastly, we will see our response to this message that God brings to us. First, let's look at God's messenger. In chapter 1, we saw last week, there's a growing tension in the book of Judges. The book of Judges begins with this question, who will go up for us? This Hebrew word, Allah, not to be confused with the Arabic term or name of, of their God, Allah. Allah means to go up, and it is a term that comes up over and over throughout the book of Judges. You will see it with the beginning, you also see it with Joseph, and something interesting happens at the end of chapter 1. You can turn a page back or a few lines up to see this of what happens. God asks, who will go up for us? But the very last word in this section is this word, upward. Who has gone up? What has gone up in the book of Judges? It is actually the borders of the Israelites' enemies. It says this, the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, along Ahidalon, and in Shalabim. But the hand and house of Joseph rested heavily upon them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Salah, and upward. The very last word of this text is another Hebrew word for going up. It is the noun version of the word upward. What has gone upward? Was it the Israelites or was it their enemies who are succeeding against them? What begins with success is now ending in failure in the life of Israel. It is now the borders of those whom they are trying to conquer that are extending or being maintained. Why has Israel failed? In this, what have they done? Why aren't they carrying out the Lord's command? Well, a new character enters the scene. Another one goes up. The angel of the Lord. Now, who is this mysterious figure? He shows up repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord showing up in scenes from Genesis all the way now until Judges. And he is assigned the name of the Lord. He speaks as if he's the Lord. And we will see later in Judges that he appears in ways like the Lord. And he is treated like the Lord. Now I'm going to hold off definitive conclusions about this. Because I think the book of Judges slowly reveals this picture of who this angel of the Lord is. But for us this morning, it's important for us to see that this person is speaking and acting on behalf of the Lord. So much so that there's a question, is this the Lord himself? 
Yet it says to us that he goes up. Why is this significant? Going up in Judges is associated with judgment, carrying out judgment on your enemies. The Israelites were to go up against the Amorites, the Canaanites, to execute God's judgment on them. Yet they failed. And now it is as if the Canaanites are executing judgment on the Israelites, defending and protecting their own lands. And now this angel is the one who goes up to execute his judgment. Kids, you know what this is like. When you do something wrong or you've been disobeying, you've been misbehaving, and you hear your mother or father say these words, don't make me get up from this seat. Don't make me come up there. Very clearly we understand that them getting up is now an act of judgment on you for your misbehavior. This is precisely what the angel of the Lord is doing in this passage. Now we see the next part of what happens, that he brings a message, an announcement. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now, an important question for us to ask every time we read the Old or New Testaments is, which covenant? In Romans chapter 9, Paul says to the people of Rome, he says about the Israelites, they are the Israelites, and to, belong, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Which covenant is he referring to here? I brought you up into the land, and I swore to give to your fathers, I will never break my covenant with you. Well, ultimately, this angel is pointing to the covenant that he made at Sinai, at Mount Sinai, with the people of Israel, when he told them, here is my law that you are to obey, now you need to go into the land of Israel to fulfill all of my law and to keep what I'm going to tell you to do. But we know that this Mosaic covenant that was given to people on this mountain in the wilderness in the desert at Mount Sinai was based, was built upon the covenant that God made with Abraham that we have already heard about today. This promise that he will be their God and they will be his people and he will do this freely apart from anything of their own. That is the basis of this. And he says these amazing words, I will never break my covenant with you. This promise of God. The very beginning, before God says any word of judgment to them, he says, I'm faithful. He saved them and delivered them because of his covenant that he made with Abraham. He wants the people of Israel to know, I am always dependable. I am always faithful to my word, and I will keep it. When God says he's going to bless, he's going to bless. And when God says he's going to curse, he's going to curse. But then something else enters in into this covenant situation. This is now where we know that he is speaking ultimately about this Mosaic covenant. He says, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. This is the first one of the warnings in the Mosaic covenant. When they were to enter into this land to take possession of the promised land, they were not to make any covenant with the people 
in Canaan. And secondly, you shall break down their altars. These were the two things that were called to the people of Israel that they were to do when they entered into the promised land. But what happened? Well, as we saw in chapter 1, they failed. They did not do this. They did not keep their side of the bargain. And now God draws this out. And I'd like for us to reflect upon these two pieces here for us this morning. Why is it significant that these two are pointed out here? There are many failures that are going to be pointed out very shortly in the book of Judges. In a few weeks, we'll look at more of the failures that God puts before the people of Israel. But these are the first two of these indictments that he levels against them. This angel proceeds in what's known as a covenant lawsuit. If you are getting a divorce, you bring out your vows as, and say this is where they have broken these vows and the lawsuit. And that's what this angel is doing. He is summarizing very succinctly what Deuteronomy chapter 7 says. When the Lord God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and so on, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. That is what we looked at last week, this concept, this idea of harem warfare. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. There are several other things that the Lord tells them here to not intermarry, to not serve their gods. And this is what God promised. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. God is prosecuting them. You have failed. I outlined you for you what you were to do, and you didn't do it. You didn't follow through. God is showing the first of two kinds of sins that we commit. There are two kinds, sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission is when we fail to do what we are told to do. We omit it. We leave it out. God says, I am telling you to go do this. Instead, they don't do it. They don't fulfill it. And a sin of commission is when the Lord tells us not to do certain things, like the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not lie. If we do any of those things, that is a sin of commission. But in this scene, we are only told two sins, and they are sins of omission. Later, we will see in the book of Judges sins of commission, the sins that they commit, what is this first failure, and why is it significant? They, the text tells us, made covenants. This is implied in chapter 1 when the Israelites bring the inhabitants to forced labor. Instead of following through on the difficult yet required work of harem warfare to destroy and kill everyone in these cities inside of the land of Canaan, they stopped. They fell short. They didn't follow through with it. They knew what was required of them, but they didn't obey. Why wouldn't they obey? 
Why didn't they follow through on this work? I think the same reason many of us wouldn't follow through on this work. It's an extremely difficult work. It's almost, in a sense, an impossible work for humans to do. They're like us, unbelievably weak. And that is precisely what God wanted to show them. Harem warfare is the carrying out of the total destruction of sinners. It is taking God's judgment sword into our hands. And when the Israelites slayed these people, they were also seeing for themselves what they deserved. They were no better than these people they were going to kill. Deuteronomy chapter 9 says this, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into the possession of this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or uprightness of heart are you going in to possess their land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. That he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your father Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And what we learn from this is the nature of sin. They did not want to follow through to keep God's commands. They did not want to do the difficult work of rooting out these sinful inhabitants. And this is the same thing that occurs in our lives. We do not want to root out the sinful inhabitants in our hearts, the sin that dwells in us. It is the verse that we read this morning in our confession of sin. The very good that I want to do, I do not do. Instead, I keep doing the thing that I hate. But sin will always try to deceive us. To say, just don't make a full end of me. Don't put me to death. Just let me live. I'll serve you. Sin will deceive us into thinking that we can go easy on it. Sin will even deceive us to make us think that we actually have power over it. And there's a second failure that happens to the Israelites that they commit. They do not break down the altars. As if the first sin were not bad enough, this one seals the deal. They turn the blind eye. This was to be the holy land of God, set apart for his people, alone for their use, for their enjoyment. Instead, they said, no, I'm not going to make a full end of this. It's okay if this sinful thing dwells in our presence. And this is the sin that we commit, or the sin that we omit as well. We turn a blind eye to sin. It's okay. It's all right if I do this, I let this live in my life. It's not going to get out of control. It's okay for idolatry to persist under our watch. The excuses that we give. And then what happens? God asks the question, what is this you have done? You can imagine the hearts of the Israelites were thumping in anxiety and fear. What is God going to say to us now? 
Well, this is what he says. I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. What kind of judgment is this? The judgment that God levels against them is that sin will lead to further sin. What God does when he judges us for sin is he gives us over to more sin. Sin itself is its own judgment. That is what he's doing with the Israelites. These people and their gods will be thorns and pains in your side. They will cause more and more harm to you. This is exactly what we see in Romans chapter 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He gave them up because they exchanged the truth. He gave them over. Sin is ultimately destruction. And that is the picture that this book of Judges paints for us over and over again. In fact, many commentators describe this as a downward spiral as we work our way through this book. That each judge is a cycle and each judge gets worse and worse and worse until we get to the end of this book. And this is the way it is in our own lives, is it not? Sin seems to get out of control. We think, I'll let this slide, it's no big deal. I can overlook this, and then before we know it, we're entrapped, we're enslaved. That sin is bringing more and more destruction into our lives. We think foolishly like the Israelites, we can make peace with it. We, make, we think our sins really aren't that bad. We overestimate our own power. I can resist this. Yet all that happens to us is further and further destruction. So what is the response? How do the Israelites respond to this? When their sin is exposed, when the record is brought out before them, how do they respond? The text tells us they lifted up their voices and they wept and they sacrificed. Now this is one of, if not the only good time the entire people of Israel responds positively in the entire book of Judges. There appears to be a genuine sense of their own wrongdoing. The book of Judges begins with weeping on the part of Israel, and as we will see later, there it ends on weeping on the part of Israel. Now, this is a right type of response to our sin, as Israel sees for themselves. But the question that we are going to begin to rest with, are tears alone a sign of true heart change? Did the tears produce the kind of response that was required of these people? As a question we must wrestle with as we walk through this book. But how do you respond? When the record of your sins is brought out against you, how do you respond? How do you break the cycle? What is this you have done? The answer is, you don't. You can't. You cannot break the cycle. That is precisely what the Israelites needed to learn. They couldn't do it. They cannot break the cycle of sin in their lives. 
Someone else must do it. And our only hope, just like it is for the Israelites, is that someone else will step in and break the cycle of sin. Break the cycle of disobedience for us. And the good news for you today is that someone has. Someone has stepped in to break the cycle of sin, the downward spiral of disobedience that we all find ourselves in. And that person is Jesus Christ. It is what we read today in Romans chapter 8. For God has done. For God has done what the law could not do. Weakened by the flesh. He did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be filled fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit God did it you say well how does that help me how does it help me to know that God did this work that the calling that was put upon the Israelites to obey him to do all these things was fulfilled by Jesus Christ And so for you today, you can look at Jesus Christ and when you see that cycle of disobedience in your life, you don't say, I'm going to get up and muster the strength to overcome this sin. You know, that may be a necessary part later on. It is to begin with the grace of Jesus Christ, knowing that he is the one who has conquered sin. He is the one who has fulfilled that righteous requirement So that you could stand before the Lord. Because he is the one who truly did weep. Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So if you trust in Jesus Christ... Yes, your tears can be heard by the Lord. He hears the tears and the cries of his saints who cry out to him for salvation and deliverance. And we will see that over and over again. Despite Israel's disobedience, God hears their cries. But Jesus came so that when his tears were shed, when his cries were cried out, that God could hear your cries for mercy. Because he is ultimately the one that God has asked the question. What is this you have done? And Jesus says, I have done it all. I've done it all for them. I fulfilled it. I kept your commands. I did everything. He replied, ultimately, it is finished. And that is the hope for us as we look at this passage today. The reason why God can hear our tears, our weeping, our cries for mercy is not because of how righteous, how holy, how good our prayers are, how good our tears are, is because he hears Jesus Christ. And if you trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, God hears your cry for mercy. He knows your need. So cry out to him. Cry out to God for mercy. Ask him and he will hear you. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have given us Jesus Christ. You have sent him as our friend, our savior, our brother, our shepherd, to deliver us so that we could answer this question and not point to ourselves, but point to you, Lord Jesus, and say, he's done it. He's done it for me. And that we can stand before you righteous in your sight, holy, blameless. Fill our hearts with hope, Lord, as we remember what our Savior has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.